Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, June 6th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice, and they're available through the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that they start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work, that tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet, And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives as they apply these tools actively in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone, or shoot us an email at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org that's w-h-y 
A-G-A-I-N.org. And we appreciate if people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service. And if you would be so kind as to let us know how we're, what we're doing is resonating with you, landing for you, being of benefit to you, that assists us in reaching that intention. Michael and Jeannie will be occupied with family today, so we'll have a a best-of show for their second hour, which gives us the liberty to take the whole hour or a shorter portion of it, depending upon need or people's interest. I... um, I know we've been reading. Yesterday we just had calls and we didn't do any reading, but I've been looking at reading from the the book titled A Walk in the Physical. And um, that book is by Christian Sundberg. And I'll get back to some of that. I thought I would lead into the reading today with a a piece by Guy Finley from a, a tiny little book he has. He has a, a, a bestseller, and I think it was internationally a bestseller, titled Letting Go, The Secret of Letting Go. And then that was uh, sold more than 200,000 copies, inspired people around the world. And then he put out this little book. And by little, I mean it's probably four inches by four inches. And the introduction reads, A young man decided to visit a certain part of a distant country that was known for its community of uniquely gifted artists. In truth, he felt compelled to go. Over the last few years, a growing sense of being strangely incomplete seemed to stalk him in spite of his many achievements. He felt blocked in some mysterious way, making him feel more like a captive in his own life than the captain of it. And so, the unspoken hope behind his journey was to find someone, something, to help him release the great but still latent forces he knew lived in his heart. He longed to free himself from what he sensed was keeping him from being able to express his true self. Soon after settling in a small hostel for budget-minded travelers, he found himself out walking through an expansive outdoor bazaar where hundreds of local artisans displayed their works. However, despite the colorful character of the place and its highly animated people, he couldn't hide a growing sense of disappointment that was descending on him. Nothing he saw moved him. 
Everything there seemed commonplace, just another dead end. What now, he thought. He kept on walking without even noticing that the hustle and bustle of the bazaar was now far behind him. That's when something happened that would forever change his life. Although he couldn't know that at the moment. He was so wrapped up in his own thoughts about all the wasted years spent searching for some silly secret. It's a wonder he heard anything at all. But just then, his ear caught the slightly ringing sound of someone tapping, rapping lightly on something from just the other side of an old wooden fence. He tried to look through it, but no luck. A moment later, after turning a corner in the fence that lined the cobbled street, he came upon an open gate. He peered inside, taking care not to be seen by whoever was working there. He was surprised to see a rather small young woman seated there in an open courtyard. She was surrounded by dozens of stones of all shapes and sizes. Her features were soft, and a faded red scarf was tied around her auburn hair. Set all around her, on some tables, with others freestanding behind her, were various stone sculptures of wild animals, mostly great birds. And although it was obvious that these creations were still in various stages of completion, they already exuded a presence that almost pulled him out of his hiding spot and into the courtyard. What have I stumbled onto here, he thought, leaning in a little further to see what else he could see. Just then, the young lady stood up, wiped her hands on her apron, and walked toward one of the larger, darker stones that was perched on a, a work pedestal of some kind. She moved slowly around it, studying something, until she pulled a little hammer of some sort from out of her apron pocket. He leaned in a little further still, not wanting to miss whatever was to happen next. After a further careful examination of one small area of the face of the dark stone set before her, she rapped on it just once, with her small hammer. She used so little force that he felt sorry for her timidity. Surely, he thought, she must be a novice of some kind. But his eyes could not believe what happened next. As soon as her tap was delivered, dozens of small pieces of the stone broke away showering the ground with dark fragments. At first, he thought she'd made a mistake and had cracked the whole stone. A moment later, he knew otherwise. She had not ruined the stone. Instead, somehow, she'd released its secret character. With that one careful tap, she brought into light not only a beautiful white marble-like material, but she'd somehow managed to shape the newly revealed stone to resemble the graceful neck of a great swan. 
He was stunned. What magic was this? His longing to know swept away any concern that he might be seen as an intruder, and he walked right into the courtyard saying, Hello. Hello to you, she replied in a bright, welcoming voice, seemingly unsurprised by his out-of-the-blue entrance. Please forgive me, he went on, but I was just outside the gate when I couldn't help see what just happened here. How in the world did you do that with a single blow from your tiny hammer? He was pointing toward the sculpture of the emerging swan, but she already knew what he meant. Oh, she said, laughing out loud. I didn't see you there, but I'm guessing you only watched me work for a few minutes before I struck that last blow. Yes? Yes, he said, that's right, nodding his head in agreement. But still, that doesn't really explain, she interrupted him. It it does, you see, but only once you understand that before you began watching me just now, I had delivered hundreds of similar small blows to the exact same spot on that stone. What you just witnessed was the result of many days of careful work coupled with a special kind of quiet consideration. Sensing his disbelief at how she was able to strike such a deft blow with seemingly no effort on her part, she continued, Yes, that's right. Her eyes smiled at him, letting him know she was about to be he was about to be told a great secret. That's how all great things are achieved. Consistent attention coupled with persistent effort, a little bit at a time. Until the right time comes when that work is rewarded. She looked at him for a moment to see if he had understood. His quiet smile said yes, so she finished her thought. Then nothing can stand in the way of what must be released. The practice of this knowledge, in whatever one intends to do, must produce subsequent revelation that is the heart of liberation itself. They shared one more smile between them in a kind of silence that only close friends enjoy. Then they shook hands and said goodbye. With consistent attention and persistent effort, you can release whatever it is that now stands between you and the freedom for which your heart seeks. You can let go. Never mind what's happened in the past. Forget whatever your mind tells you can't be done. You don't need strength or even courage to drop those dark thoughts and feelings that have your heart and mind tied down. All you need to shatter any unwanted situation is the willingness to see what's true and what's not true about you. The truth is, once you have the right interior tools and know how to use them, nothing in the universe can stop you from breaking out of old patterns and starting life over. This book, this book is filled with hundreds of powerful small hammers, 
or special insights on exactly when and where to apply the liberating light of higher self-awareness so that, a little at a time, you are empowered to strike the gentle interior blows that release the truly free and fearless you. Now all that's left to do to start a whole new chapter of your life is to turn the page and welcome the light that first reveals and then releases you to realize your highest possibilities. That is the intro from Guy Finley to his little book, Wisdom from the Secret of Letting Go a Little Bit at a Time. One worksheet at a time, one breath session at a time, one targeted journaling mind shifter session at a time, one mind shifter support group at a time, each of us can find the freedom from that which we have unwittingly been clinging to that doesn't belong in our energy system, that was never our true identity, and that which holds us from understanding or blocks us from seeing our true nature as the energy of creation expressing in form. That's what we're here to help people do, learn the truth of it as we understand it currently, see the source of what holds them back from being able to see that about themselves, and be introduced to and learn to get better and better at applying specific tools, little hammers, as Guy Finley calls them, in your own life day in and day out, with persistent and consistent application, as Michael Rice would call us to, again, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And if you call that number and press 1, it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number, and I'll be able to turn on your phone number and announce you by your area code. And you can let us know how this is landing with you, or what questions you might have. The essay I wanted to read next here will come up in a minute. Area code 520. You're in the air. Hi, this is Audrey. Hello, Audrey. Welcome. Yes, I tuned in, and the word you were saying, freedom, popped up, and I resonated with the word freedom, and I was reflecting back, and way back when, I had a friend who said, you need to tune in to this person, and he's on radio. Well, I'm a senior citizen. I didn't know how, and he showed. He told me how to do it. Well, at first, I was listening to it. I didn't understand too much. And then I got the book, and slowly my journey progressed. And then um, the last support group, you helped me and guided me while I 
did the processing of the worksheet. And I'm finding out that I was reading about it. When I did the last worksheet, I had a new insight and I experienced true freedom at the level in which I did it. And each time I do more inside work, it's an expansion of consciousness in freedom. And I will continue to do my work. And thank you both very much. You're most welcome and deserving. I'm glad you're finding it useful. That is, as we try to say in the beginning of each show, our intention is to be a service. And if this work and your learning about it is of service to you, that's delightful to hear. Yes. Anything else we can support you with today? No. Well, you, you support me with every word of the program because each time I listen to it, even if I'm listening to a replay, I come out with pearls of wisdom. Thank you. And I will unmute, or you could unmute me. Thank you. All right. Blessings. I'm glad you're finding it useful. And I will come back to this. A Walk in the Physical. The essay I was about to read is um, essay number 91 titled True Accomplishment. And this may be a repeat, but it bears repeating in my opinion. The essay reads, We often think that we're not physically doing anything, or that when we are not physically doing anything, that we're not accomplishing anything. We also often think that when we are not doing anything, nothing is happening. Neither of these two things is true. Our very being exists on a level that transcends all elements of the physical experience. We can move around the physical props all we like, and in one sense, we're doing little more than modifying the pretend objects in a video game. The real action takes place in consciousness. The real change occurs within consciousness. The real scene is the landscape of the spirit. And thus, our accomplishment in this life is not measured in physical objects moved around on the stage of life, but rather it is measured in the lasting impact we have with others and within ourselves. We are here to extend love. Extending love to one another as a conscious being is a true accomplishment. Seeing the truth of yourself as consciousness and as the extension of that creative energy or love, extension of love into form, that accomplishment 
conquering one's own fear so that one may be more wide open and more willing to talk about and extend their true nature as love, that is a true accomplishment. That is attested to by thousands who have seen the other side of this physical life. In other words, a near-death experience, or as Michael Rice calls it, a near-life experience. Thousands of people have come back and said, the true accomplishment is to see your true nature as love and be openly loving and extend that true nature to everyone and everything in every interaction. So, it is not so much what we have physically achieved. So take a moment today to, to do something truly loving for yourself and or for another. For even if your act may seem small, it is the very reason the universe is here for you. According to this work, one way of thinking about it, try it and see if it works for you. This book wants to declare this as an ultimate truth. I recommend it as an observation you can make as you live your life and you get to judge, do you prefer the consequences of living from that? There's always a reason to hope. The next essay I'll read is titled, The Power of Small Choices. The real playing field is in the small individual choices that we make. Your spiritual growth does not occur all at once. Healing the world does not occur all at once. Both are accomplished by making the choice in common moments to genuinely wield an intent that is operating from compassion and love rather than from self-protection and fear. Please do not be distracted by the scope of healing that is required. Rather, bring your attention only to what you can do in any given moment and in any given choice, no matter how simple or mundane that moment or choice might seem to be. Every action we take is a choice. Every thought we buy into, even in the quiet of our minds, is a choice. Choices are constantly presented to us, both internally and externally. Yet, so very many choices are not optimally utilized because we frequently make, quote, routine choices, close quotes, that are based in self-service and the avoidance of pain or fear. When the spiritually-minded individual begins to get a real look at the self, it can be overwhelming to discover how much of what one does is actually motivated by ego and by fear. It's too easy to then take yet another fearful step and say, wait, how can I possibly make a difference in such a vast, in such vast imperfection, close quote. We often make a similar statement when we feel 
bewildered by trying to make a difference in our vastly imperfect external world. Please take heart. Contrary to how it may appear on the surface, you actually do have great power. At this very moment, you have at your disposal the full power of the mightiest and most fundamental tool in existence. That tool is your intention, your intent. Please do not underestimate it. Please do not make the physical mind's mistake of believing that your non-physical intent itself is inconsequential. Indeed, by making a conscious effort to shift your intent in any given, quote, common, close quotes, moment, and shift it towards compassion, shift it towards openness, shift it towards courage or humility or joy, shift it towards love, even as you do so in the quiet of your own heart, you are already making a move toward external and internal healing. The power of such choices may not be immediately apparent, but please do not let that deter you. All change first occurs in consciousness space, and then only subsequently does it appear in the manifested world of form. So, The invitation is to recognize today the power of even the very small and common choices that you make. And the invitation is to have the courage to face your own imperfections and the imperfections of our world and face them with hope. For the common moment is always available to you to actualize real, lasting change. That's essay number 94. It is quite tempting in the world that we live in. It's quite tempting to be distracted by the physical. It's quite tempting to be distracted by the media. I had somebody walk in my office today and say, I I watch... Every cop show I watch, every reality TV show I watch, every news show that talks about uh, natural disasters, and I think it's beginning to wear me down. And I just chuckled. He's been coming to see me long enough that we have the kind of relationship where I can... I can chuckle at something he says, and he understands it's not laughing at him. But it was a a major understatement to say that it might be having an effect on him. When we focus our mind energy in our day, and we tune into a certain kind of music or a certain kind of radio show or a certain kind of news show or a certain kind of television show or movies, 
we are actively choosing the energies that we consume. And in this work and every great spiritual work I've been exposed to that resonated deeply with me, we are invited to, as the, the Greeks would say in ancient times, guard the portals of the mind. Pay attention to what you let into your eyes and ears on a regular basis, especially those that you make a choice for, that you are voluntarily choosing when you have some free time. If you have a job and you have to be around certain people and those people are kind of negative and nasty, and okay, you can't really change them or stop them from saying or doing what they do. You do have the ability to choose how you interpret and respond to that and their negativity. You do have the option to see them as a another being of brilliance and light who's either temporarily forgotten or yet to discover their brilliance. You do have a, uh, the option to see them through the filter that says, Every one of us is doing the best we can in each moment, given whatever resources we have, strengths and weaknesses and past life experiences, etc. So there are some times where we find ourselves in the middle of a situation where we aren't in control of what's coming at us. And even in those moments, we do have control over how we choose to interpret and respond. person that was in my office earlier was saying that that they were later in, in the conversation in a different aspect of, of the discussion he was saying you know this person's an idiot and that person's wrong there and this person and he went on for a bit and then we reviewed how when he uses that filter the only appropriate response for him is disgust and anger and bitterness and resentment. But if he switches the filter, the appropriate response is compassion. Here are people who've never been taught that they have the freedom of choice in each moment about how to interpret and respond to life events. Here are people who haven't been exposed to tools of breath work and Michael Rice's worksheet and EFT tapping and targeted journaling and three early memories of conflict and on and on. Layers of tools to apply in each situation at various levels. And he said, compassion? I could choose to look at them with compassion? And I just kind of smiled and he said, okay, but, you know, this resentment thing is, you know, it's so familiar, this bitterness, this disgust. I said, yes, and, and that's quite a heavy coat to wear, to always feel as though, to keep telling yourself that the people and things outside of you are causing you to feel negative judgment and disgust and bitterness and resentment. When in truth, if you simply switch the filter through which you're looking at them, you could spontaneously generate compassion for them. 
So it was uh, it was an interesting exchange, highlighting for somebody who's been exposed to this work for quite a few years now to see at a whole different level how to apply these tools and these observations in other areas of his life. You might call it breaking down the barriers between his current adult work and work in philosophy and psychology and and self-help tools and the traumas of his childhood and the assumptions that he downloaded through the traumas of his childhood. The next essay I'll read is titled, I Think, Therefore I Am, essay number 95. I know we've read this one before, but clearly I think it bears repeating. The essay reads, Descartes' famous conclusion, quote, I think, therefore I am, close quotes, is backward. The thought does not precede being. Being precedes thought. Thinking a thought does not create or even confirm beingness. Existing beingness thinks a thought, or perhaps more accurately, existing unlimited beingness becomes the experience of being a perspective that thinks a thought. While we are here in the physical, though, we often deeply quote, lose, close quotes, lose ourselves in these enticing yet shallow thoughts. We become almost completely wrapped up in the stimulating ideas of our minds, the ideas of identity, the ideas of responsibility, the ideas of beliefs. We think we are our identity. We think we are the same as our responsibilities. We think reality is just as we believe. The truth is, none of that is fundamental. None of that is the bedrock of truth. The idea, that idea can sound frightening because we're so wrapped up in the illusory identity that when that illusory identity is threatened, we feel that our very being is threatened. And that's not the case. Ironically, it is only through being wrapped up in what is not ultimately real, only by being wrapped up in what's false, can we even feel threatened. This goes right to the Course in Miracles talks about in my complete total vulnerability, my perfect safety lies. In my willingness to understand that my true nature cannot be hurt, chipped, dented, rusted, faded, or broken in any way and to live, think, and speak 
act from that realization, that's the only way I live into my perfect safety. Ironically, it's only through being wrapped up in what is not ultimately real that we can even feel threatened. What we really are, that which we call spirit or consciousness or beingness, this can never be threatened. Beingness is that which gives rise to all the ideas of the mind and to the entire physical experience. Beingness gives rise to physical experience. This allows it to engage in precious creation-expanding perspectives, like taking the physical form, like believing that you're in danger or you can be hurt, like believing there's something for you to justifiably be angry about. These are these creation-expanding perspectives. So the next time you think that your thoughts or your beliefs make you who you truly are, or you feel fear or hopelessness as a result of those thoughts or beliefs about yourself, please remind yourself, your thoughts exist within you. You do not exist within your thoughts. You are far bigger than thought can comprehend. That's the... That, that last thing puts me in mind of the Guy Finley story of well several and they're all flooding through my brain and I, I don't think either any of them will expand on that so I'll leave it at that the last thing we read in that essay is the next time you think that your thoughts or your beliefs make you who you really are or you feel fear or hopelessness as a result of your thoughts or beliefs, please accept the invitation to remind yourself that your thoughts exist within you. You do not exist within your thoughts. One of those Guy Finley stories had to do with the idea that fear in any human being is only possible as the result of pouring your mind energy into thinking and believing two absolutely false beliefs. The first false belief is that whatever you're facing in the moment, whether it's a situation or another person or a series of people, the first false belief that is required for fear to develop within the human being is that whatever it is they're looking at outside of them is bigger than they are. That's a false belief. That's what this essay is saying. Everything you think, everything you experience is arising within your consciousness. It's not outside of you. The second false belief that Guy Finley says that's required in order for fear to arise within a human being is that there is something of value that this person or situation is either going to try and take from you or something of value that you need to be whole and complete that this person or situation is going to block you from receiving. That's a false belief. 
You are whole and complete just as you are. There's nothing of value that can be added unto you and nothing of value that can be taken from you. So in order for fear to arise within a human being, according to Guy Finley, these two false beliefs have to be present. The first is that the person or situation in front of me is bigger than I am, and the second is the person or situation in front of me is there to take something of value from me or keep me from achieving something of value that helps me along my path. Both are false. And they are required for fear to arise, which means that all fear is false. It's the result of these two false conclusions. That's one of those precious creation-expanding perspectives that we get to sit in when we become physical and we say we want to learn and grow. The last essay I'll read today is called following the signpost of suffering. This essay reads, you are not fundamentally human. You are your higher self. The greater portion of you that transcends the physical experience, that's who you truly are. And that is always forever connected to the capital L light, light of creation, light of consciousness. That higher self knows that it is powerful and unharmable and connected and cherished. The human experience gives us the opportunity to actually experience something else. At times we believe or even assume that we are powerless, we are vulnerable, disconnected, or unloved. And when we do, we generate suffering. For some of us, much of our lives seem to be filled with these feelings. We generate suffering precisely because these self-perceptions, in parentheses, perceiving oneself to be powerless, vulnerable, disconnected, or unloved, close parentheses, these perceptions are not in alignment with the more fundamental truths of our great, greater nature. We suffer when we buy into a perception that is not in alignment with the greater truth. The higher self can't be, because it never is powerless. The higher self is a powerful part of all that is, God, light, love, creation, energy itself, consciousness. And so when we adopt a self-perception of powerlessness, we generate suffering. The higher self can't be, right? It simply can't be vulnerable. It can't be harmed because it's consciousness. So when we adopt a self-perception of vulnerability, of smallness, of weakness, of the potential to be hurt, that's how we generate suffering. The higher self can't and never was and never will be disconnected. So when we adopt a self-perception of loneliness or distance, we generate suffering. The higher self can't be and isn't, will never be outside of the energy of love, profoundly celebrated and adored. And so when we adopt a self-perception of shame or worthlessness, we generate suffering. 
disconnectedness or suffering is a signpost that points toward the inaccurate self-perception we believe and the circumstances that we believe that circumstances we believe are proving it to us yet the circumstances themselves do not automatically convey anything no matter how rigorous or painful these circumstances may seem they're neutral Wave Mastery has an entire chapter labeled All Events Are Neutral. These events only give the experiencer the opportunity to place a meaning upon them. You are always free to choose the meaning of love and compassion and gratitude, healing and joy and expansion. You are always free to choose what meaning you place upon the flow of life. You are also free to, to put an, uh, an interpretation on it that's not in alignment with enduring truth and generate the temporary experience of suffering. When you suffer, then follow the signpost. Ask yourself, what negative self-perception are you buying into? What circumstance of your life is, quote, proving, close quotes, proving to you that negative self-perception is true? What fear are you avoiding? See if you can allow yourself to completely let go of all your stories, completely let go of the meaning you're placing on the circumstance or sensation, completely let go of even all the self-perception, the buy-ins that you are entertaining. Beneath all of that, you are still you the real you. You are powerful, you are safe, you are connected, and you are always deeply and overwhelmingly the extension of love in form. And you're beyond the extension of love in form. You are the extension of the loving energy in and out of form. You are consciousness itself. You are part of the one mind. If you can follow the signposts bravely enough, we are pointing out your own negative self-perceptions and fears so that by fully encountering them and seeing them for what they are, you can truly step past them and find your way back toward what you truly, actually are. There's a... an image from A Walk in the Physical in the second book where he says, imagine that you've got a massive bed sheet that would cover, you know, five or six king-size beds. It's a massive bed sheet. And imagine you've got a bunch of children who stick their hands under the sheet and take rubber bands and push their hand through a bunch of the sheet and put the rubber band around their wrist. So now they've got their hand is covered by the sheet and they can make the sheet do puppet noises in a mouth or make it have ears. Or And now they're interacting. There's all of this sheet material and they, they've seemingly created individual puppets, individual animals, individual people by 
covering their hand with the sheet material. In this analogy, the sheet is consciousness, is all that is, is life, is the energy of creation or love. And the constraints of the rubber band around the bend in the sheet is what allows it to maintain temporarily the appearance of being a separate person or a separate animal or a separate image, a separate object. What if that's all that's happening with the creative force is these temporary constraints are placed through thought and physicality and perspective of time and space, but everything you experience is a part of you and you're a part of everything you experience. It's all one energy. And when you take the rubber bands off and pull the sheet out, it, you see that it's all, all connected and it was never separate in the first place. We are like those hand puppets in the big sheet. Our true nature and essence connects us all. There is nothing to do except see the truth of that and understand at deeper and deeper levels how refusal to see that and the way we pour our mind energy into different conclusions and interpretations, that is the actual process that creates our pain and suffering. And nothing else. So, I think that's going to wrap it up for us today, unless somebody puts a hand up, as they just did. Susan? Uh, yeah. I almost didn't, because this could be a long discussion, but that last uh, statement. Yeah. The, the image of the sheet? The, yeah, and <clears throat> I want to say, what about mental illness? I hold on to a lot of fear or feeling that if I'm talking about a grandson who appears to have uh, uh, mental problems that put him outside being able to use most of what you might be saying on this radio show. Um, And so I feel he's in some ways inaccessible and we have to find another way to deal with him. Yesterday I had a long, long, painful, he was on a kind of a manic rant. He went on and on about politics, girls, uh, the present world situation, and how he he's going to be homeless when he gets out of school because he is an artist and he's just not going to be able to make enough money and he has terrible fear of being abandoned by his family and left on his own and homeless and I said, And I've always said, you can do it, Jake. You can do it. You're very bright. You're going to be okay. And I thought, that's not useful to him. So what I said is something quite different. I said, Jake, you're going to be okay, but we're going to work with you. You're not going to be abandoned. We have enough family resources and there's enough love so that you'll always be protected. But I invite you to open up and work with us rather than fight us every step of the way. I said, I want to hang in with you. And he expects kind of like reparations from his family. He really wants abject apologies for mistreatments all along the line. And he's blaming Tim and me, my husband and me, 
for calling the police two years ago when he was having a psychotic episode and banging the door down and scary, and we called the police to restrain him. We thought even a night in jail might bring him to his senses, which was wrong because he was not well enough to be a regular person to get a lesson out of that. He was just more terrified than ever. And he was yelling at me about that. So so let me just stop you because we're going to run out of time. When you say that was wrong, you do not know that that was wrong. Right? You can judge it as wrong, but remember, in all these great spiritual teachings, what we're encouraged to do relative to judgment is just observe. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as uh, Bruce Lipton says and the Way of Mastery says, if you could see what happens even down to your cellular biology when you judge, you would never mm-hmm. judge again. So you did yeah. the best you could at that time based on the input and information and resources you had. You did it to be loving, to try and support him in the best way you knew. Everything else you'd done that was just giving in and giving money and giving you know, apologies for things you hadn't done wrong, that hadn't worked, so you tried something new. And That's true. And, and, and the judging yourself as saying it was wrong and the energy you had in it, I would encourage you to look at it, maybe do some breathing and some tapping and maybe a worksheet on it because clearly you still have negative emotional energy attached to the conclusion you just voiced that that was wrong. And so now here's this bad thing we did and we've made his situation worse. So all you can do, well, since you can't go back in time and undo that, All you can do, and you do have the ability to do this, and we have offered you the tools and you know how to use them, is go back and dismantle some of the negative emotional energy you're carrying around your memories of that situation. That would be a benefit to you and your grandson. My point was that I did apologize. I said, Jacob, we could have handled that better. We didn't handle it the way you most needed and I apologize for that. I'm not beating Tim and me up for what we did, but I'm offering him some breathing room around the edges. And he paused and he said, thank you for saying that. And I thought, oh good. We've finally found a way to communicate where there's dialogue and receptivity. Just that I apologized and said, "We, I hope we do it better and differently this next time. I don't think I'm beating myself up. I know you caught that. It's, it started a new way of talking to him, and I'm hoping this will give us a way to really start working together. Uh, I don't think the point is that I'm beating myself up so much as that he needs to hear some flexibility, some reconsideration from our part to say next time, if there ever is one, I let's try something different. And he was responsive to that. But I'm trying to find my way to him when he isn't mentally well. Okay. If it's working for you, do more of it. Sorry, I brought that up so late. <laughs> That's quite all right. That's quite all right. I will end this, though, because Jeannie has offered yeah. a, a an audio that right. goes the full hour. So I'll mute you okay. and I'll do the quick intro and click over. Thanks for the call, as always. Uh, we come from love. We're made of love. We actually are love and everything else is false. Here is your second hour. Mm-hmm.
Is this my fourth time watching it over the last few days and I still find it mind-blowing? My brain's still trying to take it in. <laughs> I promise. Well, that that was – I was somewhere around probably, well, 16 years into doing this work. And I was working uh, – developing the why work the first 10 years or so that I did this work. And then I was about six years into the course's way of saying it. So – It'll take don't don't be concerned if you need two or three or four or fifty watches of it to go, oh, okay, now I got it. Because it's all about building brain cells. You know, you go back to Yeshua two thousand years ago and he says his teaching is only for those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Now, I think we can safely assume probably most everybody in his audience have what we call eyes and ears. So he wasn't talking about that. He was saying for those who have the brain cells. And if you don't have the brain cells, your brain cannot produce a perception that matches what this means. And so many people will have a limited perception of what they just watched. And they'll go, oh, Michael, when you said, it's like, I didn't, I didn't say that in any way, shape, or form. But that's what you heard. And listening is no different than seeing. Everything that you hear comes from brain cells. I have never said a word in my life, and neither have you. <clears throat> we call it saying words, but... You know, the truth is I have a little flap of skin here in my throat, and my parents, like your parents, taught you how to vibrate that flap of skin, which means you pass air over it at a certain rate of modulation, and it produces a thing we call words. According to what brain cells contain, those words seem to have meanings. If we agree on the meanings of those words, we say, now that's actuality. And the truth is, all it is is an agreement that we all went, okay, that flap of skin moving, you know, what really happens is flap of skin moves, creates movement in air molecules, air molecules moving hit the eardrum. You know, it doesn't matter if you're in England and I'm in Virginia, my little flap of skin moving right now causes a little piece of plastic in my computer to vibrate. That vibration creates an electrical signal that then is set up into a tower, and it gets moved across the ocean, and it hits a tower there, and that little that vibration moves to your computer or your phone, however you're watching this, and that causes another little piece of plastic in your phone to vibrate and move, moves air molecules. Those air molecules move a drum in your ear. The drum in your ear converts to electrical signal, and your brain goes, oh, I heard Michael say, you've never heard a word anybody has said in your life. You've heard what fires in your brain cells. You've seen what's fired in your brain cells. The idea of the course is to learn to forgive, to learn to remove the inaccurate covers that we put over the world. How do you tell if something's inaccurate? There's an infallible signal that your structure has that will tell you when your perception, whether it's your listening or your tasting or your touching. I have fun with my granddaughter. She's four, and we've been teaching her this. And uh, one day back a few uh, a few weeks ago, she <laughs> created a piece of art at school. And so the art was puff paints, and it was a snowman. And I said, well, gee, that doesn't look like a snowman for me. That looks like, and I don't remember what it was, but it looks like this. And and so she goes, oh, I have this reality and you have a different reality. And we ended up spending, we made a game out of it. We probably spent 45 minutes or an hour playing in the car. 
making up realities about this piece of paper. We turned it sideways. Well, what's your reality now? What's your reality now? And we get to the point after a little while, are you saying, well, let's see what other realities we can find. So at four, she knows reality is the output of her mind. We were watching, I've shared this in the uh, in the course, or in the uh, Why Is This Happening to Me Again book study, but uh, back a few months ago, she wants, she's really into anatomy and physiology. She knows at four, she's going to be a doctor. And we're, she, she wanted to watch a particular video on the body, on anatomy videos. She'll spend 45 minutes an hour sitting just glued to the uh, television screen watching anatomy and physiology videos. And in this one particular one, it's a kid's anatomy video, and it's a, 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 there's a, a cartoon outline of, of a character, and all the organs in the body are, are there, and they all kind of fall out on the ground in order of size, the smallest parts to the larger parts. And each part of the anatomy sings a song to the child about what it does. So the eyes, it's their turn, so they raise up to sing. And they sing, I am your eyes, I am your eyes, I see the world around you. Arya looks at me and says, Papa, they don't understand, do they? We see with our brain, not with our eyes. How different would my life have been if I had known that at four? <laughs> How different would your life be when you know that every reality that you hold is a meaning that you give and the infallible marker that tells you that your reality, the perceptual construct of your mind, is in error, is there's hostility or fear attached. If it's not accompanied by love, it's not true. It may be your truth, it may be your experience, but remember, the single flat plane for the two-dimensional creature doesn't exist, except as a construct of the mind. Hostility or fear attached to any construct in your mind tells you that that is something you want to be forgiving, that you want to remove from your mind. And the technology was created 2,000 years ago for how to do that. That's the basis of the why work. There are only two places on the planet that I've found an exact and specific definition for how to collapse perception and how to heal it. One of them is those ancient writings from 2,000 years ago only in the ancient Aramaic language, not in the Greek language, and in A Course in Miracles. Only two places I've seen it. I've, I mean, I've looked everywhere in the last 50-plus years. Two places I've seen it. They must come from the same source. And the Course specifically shows, just like the Aramaic did, how to collapse false perception and how to bring it to healing. And that's the whole objective of this body of work that we're talking about, whether it's A Course in Miracles or my book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again, or anything else that we're in the process of doing. So I see Corey's hands up. Let's say hello to Corey. What's on your mind, Corey? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that was a lot. And um, also, I have... Uh, a question because he said, um, or I also know that um, the situation changes uh, when I, let's say, do something and I did not um, really hear what he said or, or what you said. Um, does the situation change when I change my, my, um, my my false thought about the situation and um, 
and, and well, remember uh, that. I think I've got your question. So here, here would be my input. No situation is independent of you. You're involved in your life. I talked yeah. about the high energy waves that leave mine. Somebody shows up to play it out. And then I made a whole list, the things that are going to change when you change this. Because we live in an energetic world, and our energetic world is organized. Break that word down. Organized, turned into organic structure, according to the energy patterns that we hold. And so when I change those patterns, if I, again, the example I think I used there was if, if I hold belief, I know there's a thousand generations of my bloodline that knows that we're victims. This family system is always victimized. But then I hold an energy, and energy, remember, is motion, and I send out an energy wave that says, hey, world, I'm supposed to be victimized. Can anybody victimize me? Somebody's going to show up. If I let go of that, then I can just as easily send out the energetic pattern that says, hey, I'm supposed to be nurtured and cared for and supported by all the world. Is there anybody that will show up and nurture and care for and support me? And guess what? Somebody's going to show up to do it. If they're not showing up to do it, and I go back to my old rage, my old fear, my old terror, there's my next forgiveness process. Because these things don't disappear like that. You don't do one forgiveness process. You don't do one worksheet, and, oh, now everything changes. Because what you're dealing with is a pattern of generations and generations and generations and generations of whatever the family dynamic is. You might remember another metaphor. This is another story that explains it. There was this particular group of people, and back in the Old Testament, they got lost in the desert. Now, some people think that's supposed to be a literal story. If you believe that a very aware group of people who understand astronomy perfectly or understand astronomy quite deeply could possibly get lost in a 35-square-mile area for 40 years, I've got a bridge for sale. You know, I mean, that's silly to think that it was about being lost in a hot, sandy place for 40 years. But when you understand that that word desert there is a code word for the unconscious, they're trying to explain. It's like, remember that whole text that we call all of the texts. I don't care if it's Upanishads. I don't care if it's, you know, the Bible. I don't care if it's whatever it is. They're all stories trying to explain to the two-dimensional creature that there is no such thing as a series of flat planes separated by time. And those things get misinterpreted, and people with poor intentions, hostile and fearful people, misinterpret and take advantage of people and hurt people with it. You know, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on. But that story, if you remember that story of the desert, they were talking about two different places you can live. You can live in what was called the promised land, and the promised land I would offer is the land of conscious co-creation, where you get to set the energies up to produce your life, and you get to live there as you choose to. And then the other one is the desert, the unconscious. The unconscious set those things up. And if there are generations and generations and generations of pain and trauma in the unconscious, which for most of us, we come into a world of unconsciousness, then we get to play those things out. But remember what had to happen to that group of people to get out of the series of flat planes separated by time to be able to play basketball. What happened to get out of the desert? They said the old generation had to die off. Now, that doesn't mean old people in old physical bodies had to physically die. 
The root of the word generation is genari. It means cause. All of the causes held in mind had to be removed to get out of the desert, out of creating your life unconsciously, into the promised land where you get to set a frequency up and life responds. And you get to play as a conscious co-creator. And so there'll be layer after layer after layer after layer to move through until those old causes are gone. And, you know, if you check in on the why work, uh, and, and or you check in on a larger body of my work, you know, the why book is still just scratching the surface, you'll see that we go in all kinds of different directions. Like, for instance, we do a lot of work with nutrition, right to the, to the process of you can't heal if you don't eat food. And if you eat what people call, what shows up in the normal grocery store, if you eat what people call food, which is grown on dirt, it's not food. You've got to have soil to grow food. You can't heal if you don't eat food. And if people pour glyphosate on an acre of land and then force chemicals into these seeds so that what, what you buy in the store looks like food, that's not going to vitalize and strengthen you to heal. You need soil. Soil has organisms. It has life. And out of soil, you get life. And out of life, food, you get strength and vitality. If your vitality isn't high enough, you can say, oh, I want to deal with this old rage thing in my life. Boy, I want to get rid of that. But excuse me, the minute it starts to come, it's give me a fifth of scotch. No, no, I want a beer. Give me a cigarette. Oh, let me have some sugar. Oh, I want ice cream. I want some junk food. <laughs> Pardon me. And so that holds vitality down. Healing isn't going to happen. It's a holistic program that looks at every aspect of life. And you may have to revisit some of your core issues many, 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 many times before you're vital enough to really, truly process through them and move forward. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. And... Um... A little bit is a question for me. Um, even though there <clears throat> that comes from generation and generation, so <clears throat> let's say I'm aware now um, of a negative um, belief about myself. Mm -hmm. Then I I need to deal with that now. Yes. And uh, I. That's what the worksheet process is about. Yeah. That's what the forgiveness so, process is about. Yeah. Yeah. To go in that um, forgiveness process, right? Yes. With the worksheet. Remember that Harvard tells us, there's some Harvard research that shows that in a time frame, you know, they take people in the laboratory, they hook them up to monitors, to uh, uh, electrical sensors, and they can measure... 10,000 brain cells firing. So there are 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity happening in the brain. And then what they show is that in that time frame where they can measure those 10,000 units of electrical activity, the max amount of data that goes into building your reality, the output of your mind, nine bits, nine out of 10,000 brain cells firing. A very select bit of data shows up as your reality. Mm. And the core of forgiveness is how do you collapse that reality so you can get a look at what's in the 10,000 that's underneath where the trauma is and bring that forward for healing. 
And that's what the worksheet does. And you might, as I say, have to do it many, many times. And you may do it 10 billion times, but if you never eat actual food, you'll probably never fully break through, but whatever that is. Life will get better, but you're going to have to be at full vitality to really be able to process the deepest layers. So it takes expanding your awareness and the behaviors that you do into wider and wider understanding of what does it take to function fully as a human being. And here's what I would offer it's going to look like. The day this happens is the day that 7.5 billion people on planet Earth wake up one morning recognizing, oh, I am made of the stuff called love. The people that yesterday I thought were the enemy, my husband, my father, my mother, the government, uh, whoever, are simply a projection of the pain and trauma that's within me. I'm going to heal the pain and trauma that's within me. Now with the new guidance system, I might go out and that person, you know, maybe the person that I'm blaming for my pain maybe committed a crime. And in a state of connected awareness, I hold them accountable for their crime. I don't have to rage at them. I don't have to judge them. I can just say objectively, gee, you know, you just committed a crime. And so what I'm going to do with love in my heart connected, I'm going to stay awake and alive as a human being, and I'm going to be responsible for you being held accountable for your crime. And now even that behavior brings me to a state of peace because I'm doing it out of my human life rather than out of generational patterns of pain and trauma. Oh, yeah. But that I understand. Good. Awesome. Thank you. Right. Delighted, Corey. Glad <laughs> you're here. <laughs> thank you. Yes, Doctor, I just want to thank you so much for your time and that incredible video. I've, you know, I followed your work and read your books and also at Unity Church, um, much discussion about you. And there's a lot of uh, uh, book studies. So thank you so much. Um, Where really are you located? I'm here in Austin, Texas. Oh, cool. Been a yeah. long time. It's probably been 25 years since I spoke in Austin. Oh, wow. Well, you need to make a return, especially at the Unity Church. We would love to have you. Um, well, you know, the I, you question, know, we've got a granddaughter here now that's four, and we raise her two to three days a week, so we don't travel very much anymore. We're sort of locked in here, having extended, you know, in, in our center, which is in Missouri, we do total fresh and raw food when we do an intensive. And uh, here, we've, we've been here four years now. We stopped traveling, and uh, we're doing gardens and doing more. This is what's kind of brought my understanding around to more about food like when people do an intensive with us we have a private food-based facebook page that people get access to and mm -hmm. it gives a whole um, series of recipes and how to start to shift the dietary regimen over to actual food instead of what the culture does so so Incredible. we're still producing that but not doing much traveling these days we are available though you know as we're doing here we do a lot of things on zoom so that's a oh, fantastic. Yeah, definitely relay the message. That's incredible. You know, studying the course as well as uh, the uh, course in love, of love, right. you know, and being this pure consciousness, this Christ consciousness, I'm having a little bit of a difficulty with 
how do you, when you know that this world is not real and we're living in the illusions of the past and, you know, and all the traumas of the past, and once we heal that, you know, in the Bible, we grew up as a Christian, um, you know, as Jesus says, as Yeshua says, take up the cross and follow me. Um, Moses had his people, it kind of, it kind of answered my question earlier, but in the promised land, how do we reach this promised land outside of this illusionary place that we're held here? And, you know, are we supposed to find a type of job that's going to be pleasing to God in this new world? Or are we, I'm having, because right now, you know, after COVID-19, I was furloughed and I'm having a little bit of a difficulty finding, am I, now that I feel this oneness with everything and with God, am I supposed to seek a, you know, a career to continue this love and this oneness or should I go back to technology or maybe God has a promised land for us and end of this. I'm just a little confused about that. If it makes any sense. So my take is we're in it. Yeah. There's only one thing that takes us out of what was called the promised land. Again, it's just the land of conscious co-creation and that's what's going on between our ears. That's what needs to be forgiven. And ultimately when we, discover who we are, we start to function out of our true purpose. If you go to my website under worksheets, you'll see a, a worksheet that we, we have in our workshop, Purpose, Personal Power, and Commitment. It's also a DVD that's in our catalog. And that shows people how to bypass the brainwash of the world and how to tap into what your real purpose is and begin to Good. come into alignment with that and to function on purpose. And again, <laughs> Over layer by layer. Well, let me say it differently. Okay. I've been doing this work on a personal level. You know, this is this what I've developed is an expression of the work I've done personally in my own study and put it together in a way that hopefully makes sense so that other people don't have to make it all up on their own. Mm-hmm. And in doing that in 50 plus years, in terms of my own personal process, the deepest work that I've done has been done in the last two, two and a half to three years in 50 years of doing this work. Wow. So it's a practice. And as you discover your purpose and you come into alignment with it, you know, when people don't know who they are, they can tend to become addicted to things and there are things they want to do because they feel good or what have you. And they go off and they do them and they find that they destroy themselves with it. Once they discover who they are and start to function on purpose. If those things don't support the state of being human, the state of being loved, they stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And what I've discovered, you sometimes end up starting to do things that you really don't like to do and really don't want to do, but because they support your purpose, you do them. So it, it becomes a process of waking up to the truth of who we are. And then, you know, come from family systems. Like if you're the early adopter, I know for me and my family system, I can sort of imagine a certain level of understanding this work. My mother loved this work when I started to develop. She would come to Heartland and she just loved it. But I can't imagine anybody else in my bloodline, cousins, aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers, you know, grandparents. I can't imagine anybody else even starting to be able to hear this conversation, let alone <laughs> <laughs> engage in it. You know, there's no yeah. So I was the early adopter. 
And, right. and, and it's a challenge when you're the early adopter because most everybody looks at you like you're nuts. Yeah. You know, I was, I was uh-huh. fairly successful in a business. I had three businesses. I had about 60 employees back when I first started to come into this work, and I started to do it part-time. And one day, I literally got up in the morning and, and had the guidance to walk away. And I locked the doors, and I just walked away from those businesses, and I went back to school. I actually had a, a penthouse apartment in one city. I had businesses in three different cities. I had homes in three different cities. I had an Eldorado on one side of my driveway, and I had a Mark III on the other side of my driveway. Literally, in a day, I gave it all up, and my family was like, you're nuts. And I went back to school studying naturopathic medicine and, and moved in the direction of teaching this work full time. And I literally traded all that in. I had a bicycle that I went back and forth to school in, and I exchanged taking care of a small apartment building for a one-room apartment that I lived in while I was going to school. Mm-hmm. My family was sure I was nuts. But I'll tell you what, I wouldn't trade one minute of all that stuff that I had for what I have now. Right. So, it's, yeah. you know, and the challenges each goes through. I mean, everybody's challenge is going to be different. Um, you know, the metaphor is a powerful way to be able to get to see, oh, that's some of what I might go through. But there's a lot for most everybody to go through to to wake up. And also, really quickly, and thank you for that. That was incredible. And uh, that's something that's happening to me now. The thing is that to to discover our purpose, is there an, is should we surrender and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us to this purpose, the gifts that God has in store for us even before we were born? Or do we have to seek our hearts? To, I know I'm going to look at your website as well for our purpose, but I'm, I'm just kind of seeing what, what is my purpose um, in this next chapter of my life, which I, I know is solely to work with the Holy Spirit. And, I, and that's something that makes me come alive every morning. But um, sometimes I kind of get conflicted. Should I surrender and allow the Holy Spirit to uh, guide me? Or is it something that I have to seek? Well, my offering would be that Living out of your purpose means living out of your highest guidance in a state of being. It hasn't mm-hmm. necessarily got to do with what you do in the world. You know, there's a right. story about a, a film crew that went to a, a place where they're building a cathedral. And there's a guy who's wheelbarrowing stones up to this cathedral, or, or there are a number of workers. And the interviewer interviews the workers, and he says to one guy, so what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm pushing this damned old wheelbarrow. And another one says, well, I'm putting these stones in place. And another one says, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. They're all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Where are you coming from is what purpose is really about. Beautiful. So as you, you know, that, that worksheet, and the worksheet's pretty self-explanatory. If you go to the website, you don't need the whole workshop to do it. Uh, it is in their catalog, but, you know, you, it's pretty self-explanatory. And, you know, we've been brainwashed. You'll remember the in the ancient scriptures they say, do not be molded by the world. In essence, they're saying, do not be molded by the world, or you'll end up moldy. It'll kill you if you buy into what the world feeds you. And so giving up the things that the world has forced onto us and and to be able to make that transition means you have to get out of a brainwash. 
Mm-hmm. And that purpose exercise, you know, the world has a purpose for you. We want you to be a good commercial servant. We want you to serve the commercial interests of the world. Exactly. And so most of us think, well, I went to school and I got my degree in, and now I'm a good commercial servant, so now I'm fulfilling my purpose. And that may be the exact opposite of what somebody's purpose is. And so somebody might start out and they're, and they're in something that's the opposite, and tomorrow they may end up doing the same thing. There's a, there's a good story that uh, Ram Dass tells. I believe it was Ram Dass, if I'm remembering correctly. And there was a guy who uh, came to know of Ram Dass, do some of his workshops, and he was a banker, a, a, a Wall Street banker. And he got into Ram Dass's work and realized mm-hmm. that he was not where he was supposed to be, and he quit the bank. He was a pretty high-level banker, and he quit the bank. He was actually the vice president of a commercial bank on Wall Street. And for about 10 years, he became a hippie, you know, long hair, hippie, you know, that was his life. And one day, Ram Dass tells a story. One day, this fellow is in Manhattan, and he ends up running into the president of the bank. And he's in his long hair and hippie stage. And the bank manager says, you know, I would really love for you to come back. You were the best vice president of commercial loans I ever had. Would you come back? And the guy cut his hair and went back. But what he was doing when he went back was not being the vice president of commercial loans. He was using his position as a banker to teach the truth of who we are and what life is really about. So, you know, it's not so much about what you're doing, what you're function is in the world, but what your purpose is and alignment with your purpose. In one case, you know, being the commercial banker was just the worst thing he could ever think of. In the other case, he was able to bring the presence of love to people in the commercial banking world that otherwise would never touch it. Perfect. Yeah, good answer. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Such great insight. Thank you so much. All right. I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. E-C-E-M? E-C-E-M? Oh, you must be muted. Can you hit your mute button? Hello, Michael. Hey, how do I pronounce your name? Hey, Jan. Uh, hi, uh, Michael. Um, it was great, the video, and I am, uh, I am familiar of what you're talking about. So I have a few questions, uh, starting from some basic ones, and it will eventually go uh, a little bit. Go for it. Okay, so uh, at the first video, at the three uh, minutes of there is um, talking about two-dimensional creature as human. So my one question is, my first question is, why humans are two-dimensional if we're living in the world of three dimensions? Well, my offering was that our analogy was the two-dimensional creature and the basketball <clears throat> is three-dimensional. Okay. I wasn't saying we're two-dimensional. But that's an analogy that helps us to understand. And my offering is that, you know, if we listen to Einstein, Einstein says we live in at least a four-dimensional world, and we're three-dimensional creatures. So the inability of the uh, two-dimensional creature to play basketball and understand is due to the fact that they're short one dimension in perception. So my question of everyone is, are we three-dimensional creatures living in a fourth-dimensional world, and therefore are we limited by our lack of that fourth dimension? And when we open our higher minds, do we take on that fourth and actually move into being four-dimensional creatures? 
So escape that trap. I understand. I am also very interested in spiritual intelligence, but what you are talking about, the tuning into higher dimension of understanding ourselves from a higher perspective. And my second question is, if the forgiveness is the essence of everything, why it's not at the pinnacle of the map of consciousness by David Hawkins instead of the Enlightenment? Rephrase that again. I, I didn't quite catch it. I said, if the forgiveness is the essence of everything, and uh, regarding to the uh, teachings from David Hawkins, who came up with the map of consciousness. Yes, I'm familiar with David's uh, work. Okay. Um, so uh, why it isn't, because you said the forgiveness is the pinnacle of the map, is the essence of everything. So my question is, why it's not at the pinnacle of the map of consciousness instead of enlightenment? Well, my take is, I wouldn't say, you maybe heard me say that, but it didn't come out of my mouth, that forgiveness is at the pinnacle. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that is true. What I'm saying is, that's the tool for getting to the pinnacle. Actually, once you've reached, once you've moved past the three-dimensional perspective of a four-dimensional world, then the need for forgiveness disappears. It's actually gone. It's, it's of no use whatsoever. Once we've achieved that state, then we're in the direct, whatever word you want to give it, whether it's enlightenment or whatever it is, we're there. And when we're there, forgiveness is no longer necessary. So it's only forgiveness wouldn't be the objective or the pinnacle of life. It would simply be the key tool. One of the things the Course talks about forgiveness as is that forgiveness is the only single-edged sword. In other words, everything else that we do to get there can be turned and used against us, or we can use it against ourselves. Forgiveness is the only single-edged sword. It's the only thing that if you engage in it will keep you moving forward, moving forward. And then once you've opened to that higher state, unless there are other hostility and fear-based realities within you to be forgiven, then you put the tool aside and it's, it's not of any use anymore. It, it isn't a necessity. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't offer that that's the pinnacle. I just offer that's the tool okay. for going to, you know, one of the things the Course talks about is that, that truth cannot be spoken in words, and you need that what the Course is about is taking you to the experience. The experience then will become your guide. Forgiveness is just to move the trash out of the way. Okay, um, I have another quick question. It's a little bit personal, but I've been thinking about it for over a couple of months, so it's right. the right person I take the space to ask. Um, personally, I have been, when I look at my past, I have been attracted for uh, narcissistic abusive partners, and I am very highly sensitive. Say that, say that once again, I didn't quite hear you. I said I have been attracting a lot of Uh, narcissistic abusive disorder partners who has mm -hmm. narcissistic abusive partners. Right. Uh, so, uh, as I said, so paradoxical, I have two questions. One is, do I attract the one that I am also? Does it mean that I am narcissistic uh, abusive? I am. I have the tendency of the narcissism, narcissism, or 
because I am empath, uh, I uh, attract the completely opposite one, which I don't have. So the life brings to me. Okay. So my take on that, a couple, couple of things. First of all, what I hear people saying, and I don't know if this is what you mean by the word empath, so I'll, I'll get clear with it. What I hear, I've heard people over the years saying that they're empaths, they feel other people's feelings. You know, so I, I feel your disturbance, so I'm disturbed. And my take is that's just another form of denial. I may, being an empath, be able to feel what your feelings move in me, but I'm feeling what's moving in me. I can't feel yours. That's just not possible. It, it's like, you know, a, a radio station sends out a signal, and I'm attuned to 900 on my radio, and the radio <clears throat> expresses what is sourced from within the radio that reflects what the energy is out there because it's attuned to it. So if I'm feeling pain, I'm lying to myself when I say I'm feeling your pain. But if you approach me with a pain that matches my pain, then your pain can resonate my pain and here I am in pain. And now I need to do forgiveness to free myself of that. When I free myself of that, then you can show up with pain and I'll be aware of your pain. I'll be aware of the energy that's going on in you and I'll be connected to love and in a state of peace. So that would be my take on, on the empath experience. Now, what, what lies in your history, if you're experiencing, and, and I would categorize the type of person you're talking about as someone somewhat abusive. So what's in your history, and, you know, it might be great, 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 great grandmother that was abused by a narcissistic husband. And that energetic pattern, if it's in your field, and you've dealt with most other things in your life and you're in a pretty clear space, you're sourcing that energy that says, okay, so I need an abusive narcissist to show up to heal this layer that I need to heal, to free my genes and to free my great-great-grandmother from that. And when I do, then that whole game changes. I remember working with a man back in Atlanta. This goes back well, 40 years ago. This was back when I first started working with the course. And he was an attorney, very successful from a family. His father was a very wealthy, well-known attorney in Atlanta. And he was very intellectually oriented. He was atheistic. And he was in, he was having some difficulties. And... Uh, a physician that he knew suggested that he come and see me. Now, when you get this intellectual, successful atheist attorney that comes to see Michael Rice, there's, there, you know, there's obviously something going on that he's going to show up on my doorstep. And so I started to work with him, did some forgiveness work, and there's a process I've developed called still point breathing. So we did some of that work. And what showed up in the middle of his still point breathing session was a an experience surfaced from within him that he categorized as what he would call a past life. Now, is the past life true? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I've seen people who, when they've experienced what they call past life experiences, have had dramatic changes in their lives. 
does that mean it's factual? No, it could be just the creative mind's way of presenting something to us so we could handle it. Again, it could be something genetic. In any event, he's working away in the still point breathing process, and he has a memory surface, an awareness surface, of lying in a sarcophagus. And everybody around him, he becomes aware, thinks he's dead, but he's not. And his wife is there, and he knows that he has no signs of life, but he's alive. He's there, and he has the thought that if she – like, she's the only one that's going to be able to help bring him back, the only one. Like, his life depends on her, and if she leaves, he'll die. And so she left, and he died. Now, this is a guy that's very intellectual, like – tough attorney type, like a really high-level attorney, and from a very wealthy, and as I say, atheistic family. After he goes through that death experience, I say to him, well, okay, so who are you? And all he can say, and we probably went through this, I don't know, three, four, five times, I don't know, but I am. Who are you? He's just gone through death. Who are you? I don't know, but I am. So we complete that session, and he leaves my office. Now, some of the things that he had shared with me that motivated him to come and see me, he, was, he had had two relationships in his life. One was a high school sweetheart, and one was a woman that he was, had been married to for 10 years and was currently in the process of a divorce. After that session, he realized that he had said many times that if – this woman divorced him, he could not live. And he had been, their divorce had been in process for about six months, and he had been in such trauma that his business was failing, his bank account was empty, and he was on psychotic or psychotropic medicines because he was so distraught. And when he completed this session, that was just relieved. He left the session. He shared with me a couple days later. He left the session, and he had to go and get gasoline for his car. So he stopped just a few blocks from my office and got gasoline. He pulled into the gas station, and the woman he'd had his relationship with in high school was in the gas station getting gas. Now, this is 10 minutes after his session. He hasn't seen this woman since they were kids, and I guess he's probably 50 at this point. She's in the gas station, and they're able to connect sweetly. He leaves there. It's his day to be with his two children that he has with the woman that's divorcing him. He goes to her house to pick the children up, and normally she just sends the kids out to the car like she won't have anything to do with him. She actually opens the door and invites him in. First decent word she's had to say to him in, in the six months they've been separating. Oh, pardon me. Actually, there, there are two pieces to the puzzle. He, he goes to the mall. This is before that, that visit occurs. He goes to the mall, and she is the, the woman that is divorcing him is going through the mall. Now, he's told me that he can't think of her or see her without just going, just breaking down. 
He sees her at the mall. Now, this is from the gas station. He goes to the mall. He sees her, and he's able to say, hi, and how are you, and no response whatsoever. He just, you know, acknowledges her, gives her a hug, and, you know, moves on with no trauma whatsoever. Then he goes to pick up his children, and that's when his former wife, who he had divorced 10 years earlier, invited him into the house. Previously, she would send the kids out, and that would be it, come in, and she hasn't had a decent word to say to him in 10 years since they've been divorced. And she comes over when he comes in the house and gives him a kiss on the cheek and says, hey, everything's really okay, isn't it? And the kids, they go off to dinner. Now, he's told me that his daughter has no use for him, and he hasn't touched his son since he was an infant. And I don't remember exactly. He's maybe 15 or 16 years old. They go out for dinner. After dinner, he's dropping them off at the house, and his daughter, who up to that point has no use for him, his daughter says, hey, Dad, how about if my boyfriend and I come over and cook dinner for you next week? And when he's dropping the kids off, his son, he said, now, I haven't touched my son since he was a small child. He said, my son grabbed me and hugged me, and it was like he was never going to let go of me. Now, this is all within five hours of touching into this memory of being in a sarcophagus and knowing if this woman left him, he would die. So what, what do we need to deal with? And, and my offering is, what's happening for you right now? Are you breathing? What's moving for you? You want to mute your phone? No, no, I am listening. Okay. Is there any anything moving in, inside at all? Um, I mean, a lot of things. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It just looked like there was maybe some process. Some things were opening up. So just we'll hold the space. In any event, you know, was it a past life? I don't know. I mean, I could easily explain that his mind just generated this whole thing. So this sarcophagus experience, so he could deal with some things, but. Everything around him changed, and these relations, I mean, this woman he hasn't seen since their kids is there five minutes from my office, and, and this woman that he's divorcing or is divorcing him, he has no trauma in seeing her, and, you know, his, his former wife welcomes him, and his kids hug him, and, you know, so why do these things come that are traumatic? Because there's something in me that needs to be resonated, and the purpose of life my take is life is about life. Life life abhors death. And so if we're holding an energy with which we're killing ourselves, life is going to, through resonance, send us somebody to bring it up. When they do, we do one of two things. We project it into our brains and them and go, hmm. Or we go, oh, Look what's coming up for me, and I apply forgiveness to that, and I remove that, and I've received the gift that this seemingly traumatic experience has given me. Does that fit and make sense for you? Yes, all of them. Have you tapped into the forgiveness processes yet, the worksheet um, from why is this happening to me again? Um, I just, uh, no, I'm just reading at the other side, but I haven't done it before. This is the first uh, room I'm joining with you. Great. Well, I'm glad you're here. And there are several Zoom sessions in uh, Yinka's archives 
where we've walked somebody through that whole process. At the, toward the end of this video, okay. I went through the steps of forgiveness, that in Aramaic, the word forgive is shebag. It means to cancel. And it's the goals that I hold that cause my mind to use certain data to produce my mind's constructs. When mm-hmm. I cancel the goal, that construct collapses, and that's when I get to look at what's underneath the surface, what's in the unconscious. Mm-hmm. And so there are several videos where we've walked somebody through that process. We'll just just take it and put it to work and see what uh, what it opens for you. Okay, sure. And um, one other thing you mentioned in the yes. video was um, you said leave everything that you um, want. Well, again, are they material possessions? Like, what do you mean about that? Okay. So the the quote from the course and where it parallels the Aramaic on how forgiveness works. Quote in the course says, "Let go of all the things you think you want." That means your goals. That you cancel a goal. Your trifling treasure. The course talks about a goal as being a trifling treasure. If you want something other than to function as a true human being and discover the truth of who you are, oh, I want them to do this for me, I have a goal. And if I have a history that people don't do that for me, maybe I'm sad or I'm in fear or I'm in rage about it, the way I clean up my sadness, my fear, or my rage is by canceling the goal, letting go of what it is I think I want. And what that does is it collapses the output of the perceptual mind. When that collapses, it collapses in on itself, and it gives me access to the unconscious part, what's beneath the surface. So that's the forgiveness process. And when you you can you know access one of the worksheet processes, or you can go to my website, whyagain.org, and if you go to the upper left-hand corner of the uh, of the website, there's a link that says Start Here. If you click that. It'll take you to everything about forgiveness, but in particular, there are about 20 different, we do a radio show five days a week, and there are about 20 different radio shows where we've walked somebody through the whole forgiveness process. And so you can listen to those and get some instruction on how that forgiveness process works. But that's what I was referring to. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad you're here. Glad you're here to share it. Pass it on to somebody else. Anyone else? One last question. Go for it. Uh, um, Knowing a lot of things like this, what is excited for you at the moment? Because they're a very high level of wisdom. So anything excites you in your life? Several things. Yes, actually, I have a granddaughter that's four, and we raise her two to three days a week. And she's been teaching me, you know, I knew I was doing this work when I had my children, and I knew to a certain degree what being a father was about. But now being her grandfather, she's taught me a whole lot more about what being a parent, that my real job is to uncover the truth about myself as love and to see only that in her, no matter what she does, to be the space of love and to attune to her as the essence of love so that she can consciously create a an expression, a vehicle through which to express the truth about who she is. That's one of the most exciting things in my life. 
And besides that, the last four years or so, uh, since we stopped traveling, my wife and I have been on the road for decades. We traveled six to ten months of the year. Well, we don't do that anymore. And so we've gotten into building soil and gardening and just adding a whole other dimension to the work, and that is that the nutritional aspect that that is the only way to really solidify or bring this energy system to its highest levels of vitality. And then beyond that, you know, our commitment is to take this work to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. When Yinka contacted me and said, hey, is, you know, we're doing this book. And I said, okay, well, I'm part of it. I'm here. And our commitment is to make this available literally to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. And the other thing that uh, really excites me is the opportunity to keep doing layer upon layer upon layer of my own interpersonal work. I had an experience back, oh, it's probably getting close to a year ago now. I was doing still point breathing process that we teach. And I was instructed, you know, I'm laying there with my eyes closed breathing. And I was instructed to look down. I looked down. And what I was shown was a field of darkness so vast that I couldn't comprehend it. And throughout that field of darkness, there were spots of light, like an uncountable, unfathomable number of lights in that darkness. <clears throat> and I asked, what is this? What am I looking at? And what I was shown what I was told these were my ancestors and the darkness that they were locked in and that they were asking me if I would assist them in processing through that darkness and so that's created another layer of motivation for me and that's another thing that I'm very excited about that I realize that I am actually creating the space of support and processing out the darkness that, and, and from that experience, realizing these were ancestors that weren't in bodies anymore, that it seemed like there wasn't much they could do about it, not being in a body, and that being in a body was the opportunity to do it. And so that's another thing that's exciting to me is that I'm, I'm more and more learning to be able to capture that energy, bring it to the presence of love and process, not only them, but my own genes and my own family system through it. And, of course, when we do that, we're doing, you know, there's a wonderful principle in the course that says when you are healed, you are never healed alone, that you're opening a space for everybody on the planet who has similar issues. So there's some of the things that excite me. Besides, I just celebrated my 18th anniversary with my wife, and we had an awesome dinner two nights ago. And, uh, you know, we have a, an eternal commitment in our relationship. And, uh just the things that are growing personally, interpersonally with us, the work we're doing together and individually is uh, is pretty, for me, is pretty dramatic and pretty cool, pretty sweet. So there's some of the things happening in my world. From the cognitive perspective, there's 21 days to see the new habit. So you were um, also in the video mentioned that um, it takes long and long, long time to do the healing of ancestrals. So how long? Well, I, I use an analogy. Let's imagine I've got a 100-gallon uh, barrel of water, 
and I have a hose on it. And somebody says, well, Michael, how long is it going to take to empty the barrel? Well, is the hose wide open? The barrel might be empty in three minutes. Am I pinching the hose and drinking a dip, a drip? It might take 100 years. Willingness is the key. How how willing am I as an energy system? You know, it's interesting. In the Aramaic language, they talked about a thing called Satan, and the Greeks interpreted Satan as some kind of a creature that's out to get us and destroy us. But actually, in Aramaic, the word Satan means the resistor, one who misleads. Most people in the world today live literally, in the Aramaic sense of the word, trapped in Satan. You ask them to be responsible for what's going on inside them, and they've got all kinds of stories about why they're not responsible, and it's all somebody else's stuff that they're feeling. And they, uh, you know, so they go into resistance to ownership of it, and then they have a whole story about why it's somebody else's. If one lives trapped there, it can take a long, long time. Developing willingness is what lets the energy system open for that release. But in the state where people belong to what I've come to call the one world universal religion of blame, it's all somebody else's fault, it's theirs that I'm feeling, it can take a long time. The more we open to, oh, this is what's moving inside of me, it's mine, the faster it moves. I know that for me, Things that in the early days of doing this work that were traumas for me to work through, I might take two, three, four days to move through something. And I realize now that I have things come up that maybe are 10 times as strong as that was way back then, and I could be done with it in 30 seconds. So my take is that, you know, with practice, we develop the skill and the ability to throw the garbage out. And when, when I'm willing to take responsibility and ownership and let go of the resistance, then things move much faster. So it's all dependent on what, where, where do you stand with that? If you stand in resistance, if you stand in projection, if you are a member of the one world religion of blame, it's all somebody else's fault. It's going to take a long time. No, I'm not. <laughs> I am not. I am not that. Yeah. Oh, no suggestion to draw. I'm just saying, in a general way, that would be the principle. Thank you. Yeah. Delighted. We haven't got any more hands, though. Okay. Well, great session. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yes. It's fun to listen to it with you again. I'm sure that the energy of what you saw bouncing off of your mind helped to Mm -hmm. open some new spaces in my mind. So I got another level of understanding of my own lesson here and uh, appreciate each and every one of you and the questions you bring. You know, uh, there's a a story about Albert Einstein, and uh, they asked him, if you were given a problem to solve and you had one hour to solve it or you would die, what would you do? And Einstein said, I would spend 55 minutes getting to the point of understanding the question that needed to be asked, and then I would answer that question in five minutes. So the questions that come, being able to question, having, for me, one of the benefits of doing this work and interacting with people all over the globe is I get to interact with, for instance, with yourself, your refined questions, and that opens spaces for me to new levels of understanding. So thank you for allowing me to be part of facilitating this. Mm-hmm.